Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got two segments in the podcast today. The first is a conversation I had with Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, a Democrat representing Illinois' 9th District. The second is a discussion moderated by Tech Policy Press masthead member Melissa Ryan on the threat of big tech and disinformation to social movements that took place recently at Netroots Nation, a conference for progressive organizers. Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky serves as Senior Chief Deputy Whip and Chair of the Consumer Protection and Commerce Subcommittee of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which has called the tech CEOs to testify in recent months and introduced proposed legislation. In March, Congresswoman Schakowsky questioned Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg on his views on updating Section 230 and on his platform's role in January 6th. Let's listen to a segment. Mr. Zuckerberg, um, immediately after the Capitol insurgency, um, Cheryl Sandberg um, did an interview in which she insisted that the uh, siege was largely planned on smaller platforms, um, that, uh, but court filings actually show something quite the, uh, quite the opposite that the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers um, used Facebook to coordinate in real time during the, uh, during the siege. And so my question for you is, will you admit today um, that uh, Facebook groups in particular um, played a role in, the, uh, in fomenting the uh, extremism that we saw and that led to the uh, Capitol siege. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks for the, the, the question on this. In, in the comment that, that, that Cheryl made, what, what I, I believe that we were trying to say was, um, and, and, and what I stand behind, um, is what was widely reported at the time, that uh, after no, January I, 6th. You know, I'm sorry to, to interrupt, as um, many of my colleagues have had to do, because we only have five minutes. But would you say that, and would you admit that Facebook played a role? Congresswoman, I think certainly there was content on our services, and um, and and from that perspective, I, I think that there's further work that we need to do to make our, our services I, I and, and moderation more effective. Uh, I hear uh, that. that. I would... hear that. Okay. Of course, since that conversation in March, whistleblower Francis Haugen brought forward a trove of documents that revealed the company was very aware of the role it had played. It had conducted an analysis of how the Stop the Steal movement swelled on Facebook, and the documents show it went into emergency mode to implement measures immediately after the insurrection that it had previously rolled back to reduce violence and incitement risk on the platform. After the insurrection, one employee wrote on an internal message forum, quote, all due respect, but haven't we had enough time to figure out how to manage discourse without enabling violence? We've been fueling this fire for a long time, and we shouldn't be surprised it's now out of control, unquote. I asked Congresswoman Schakowsky about the company's efforts to deny responsibility, about the bills she has prepared to reform the tech platforms, and when we might see Congress act. Congresswoman Schakowsky, thank you so much for speaking with me. In March, you uh, put questions to Mark Zuckerberg 
about the role his platform played in the January 6th insurrection. You asked him at the time if he would admit that Facebook had played a role. Uh, he gave a kind of somewhat dismissive answer, said that, you know, certainly there had been problematic content on the platform, suggested that the company needed to do a bit more around content moderation. But these leaks that have come forward from Francis Haugen suggest the company was was very aware of the role that it was playing uh, and of the harm that it was causing. What do you make of this in, in light of the exchange you had in March and what you've learned since? Well, that wasn't the only interaction I've had with Mark Zuckerberg. And it's always been, well, you know, we can always do better. We're trying to do better and never really quite owning up to what they do. And so, of course, that was a, not a full answer and certainly didn't reflect what we now know, um, that they the, the role that they actually played to help plan and execute um, what happened on January 6th. I mean, it was an important role that, uh, that, that they played and reflects, I think, the problems with ongoing problems with, uh, with Facebook. As I said, it's so many ways that they have harmed people. People died um, on, on January 6th. And they were able to communicate with one another and, and actually help make it happen because of Facebook. And in my view, we have to create a situation where a Facebook is held accountable for the kind of harm that they do in situations like that. You know, they have been mentioned, but not really even blamed in this investigation that's going on in Congress um, for helping to amplify and move along this, this insurrection. And so we wanna create a situation where they have to take responsibility. You've got senior executives of the company, uh, Zuckerberg included, Nick Clegg, uh, dismissing the the argument that that Facebook played a role. In fact, putting forward this sort of straw man, saying it's absurd to claim that Facebook was the cause of January six. I don't I don't think that's what you're saying, is it? No, I'm not saying that they were the cause. Of course not. But you know, when it makes it much easier to organize, communicate, and execute, um, and that's what Facebook is uh, about and knows it and knew it, um, that uh, they certainly have some responsibility. Uh, no, I don't think they were the cause. In August with Representative Eshoo, you wrote to Facebook again, asking for more information about COVID-19 vaccine misinformation and disinformation. Uh, and the company refused your reply. Um, you know, this is again, another uh, issue that the Facebook uh, papers, the leaks from Francis Haugen have brought more clarity to. Did you learn anything new from these disclosures? You know, Francis Haugen is a hero. Um, the thing that's really remarkable about what she has produced is that, you know, there's been a lot of information about the role that Facebook has played, but we haven't seen the documents before. And now that we know that they knew, you know, in black and white, that, you know, it's, it's, it's really useful, I think, in going forward. I think American consumers have had that queasiness about Facebook um, and uh, a lack of confidence um, in the 
internet altogether and about the role that they play supposedly as uh, consumers and really very often as the product themselves. But now now we have, have seen much more graphically, and I think it's a game changer in some ways what, what uh, Francis Haugen did. So I want to ask you about these two bills um, and start first with uh, the Justice Against Malicious Algorithms Act, the most more recently introduced uh, uh, language, uh, which, as I understand it, would remove immunities that Section 230 affords the platforms uh, in certain contexts, such as when an, an online platform uh, uses, uh, recklessly uses an algorithm or other technology to recommend content that contributes to physical or severe emotional injury. Now, uh, bear with me, uh, just kind of get this uh, across in a way that uh, hopefully allows you to respond, but proponents of this bill seem to see it as imperative um, to addressing misinformation, hate speech, incitement to violence, um, and the mechanisms on these platforms that that let those harms reach scale. Um, but then you've got critics, the, the lawyers who say, you know, any measure that would restrict the distribution of, of even unpopular speech or dangerous speech would raise the same First Amendment problems as laws that would prohibit that speech altogether. Now, I'm sure you've seen these these critiques since you put the bill forward. What do you make of those points of view? How do you reconcile them? You know, the, the lawyers have always been there um, arguing these freedom of speech issues. But in fact, it's not that hard to identify those areas where I think 99% of Americans would nod their head and say, no, this is improper information on the, uh, and dissemination of misinformation on the internet. The, they, they have hidden themselves from these arguments from the, you know, at the very beginning of the internet, we said, let's give them lots of leeway, 230, we'll um, give them immunity from prosecution, um, we want to not uh, squelch any kind of innovation, um, but we are way past that point right now when we have to have some guardrails. And that's exactly what, what this does. It, make, it will make platforms rethink their algorithms. Um, and these large platforms are going to face possible liability. I think that uh, there's widespread agreement on, on that, certainly among the, uh, the public, but also I think among um, policymakers. You know, we're, we're certainly not against, uh, we're not in favor of absolute removal of Section 230 uh, immunities, but we want to set the limits. It's so- clear that, uh, that Facebook knows no limits. They just know no limits. Anything that they can do to get more eyes on, on them and on the platform and make more money, they seem more than willing to, to go along with it. Even the harms, you know, I think that the fact that children now, young adolescents have been so harmed and they knew about it indicates the lengths to which they will go and are willing to go. I think it has really sparked parents to think about, is this right for my children? Can I trust these companies in any way not to do things that are going to cause them uh, depression or food disorders? 
and really dangerous outcomes that they are that Facebook is willing to um, participate in. And no, we 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 have to uh, put we have to set some uh, parameters. What can we expect next on this bill? Well, I think, as I said, that I I think this is the kind of bill that the moment has arrived. And I think what we need to do now is to get more co-sponsors. We want, and I believe that it is um, possible to get bipartisan co-sponsorship. Actually, on the 230 issue, um, there has been more bipartisanship than on other, many other issues. And, and so I, I'm looking forward to now adding to the list of uh, members on both sides of the aisle that want to move something that will can start with protecting their, their children, but in general, stop the kind of malicious algorithms that we see. So your online consumer protection act, uh, which you introduced with uh, representative Kathy Castor had a kind of different approach around section 230, uh, this idea of using the, FTC or giving it uh, authority to oversee enforce uh, terms of service. Um, have there been further discussions around around that bill text? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we've had a number of roundtables where we have at each one of them brought stakeholders from business, consumer groups, um, advocacy organizations, experts to discuss this. And out of that, we have um, been able to begin, at least again, to get the bipartisan support that that we want. We are working closely with the uh, Republican chairman, Gus Bilarakis, of my subcommittee to try and, and, and work out how we can say that terms of service, that they identify themselves, that the platforms identify themselves, um, that those become real um, guidelines, they call them community guidelines, and that they have to stick to them. And if they do not, then the Federal Trade Commission can go in um, and we can go after them for that. Live up to, your, live, live up to what you say you want to do. So, uh, you know, critics of this bill would say, you know, it creates this sort of compliance mechanism, or it might get very murky, um, might otherwise uh, somehow chill speech. Have you heard those critiques of it? And how do you respond to them? You know, yes, of course, they always come come back with, uh, with the, the same old, I think, worn out arguments. Well, let's see, you put out these terms of service, do they mean nothing then? Are we not supposed to expect that they will, um, that you will abide by them. And having violated them, do you expect that we're not gonna do any kind of enforcement whatsoever? I think it's, uh, you know, very logical and calling their bluff now. So let me ask you just a, a last question about um, what you anticipate in terms of movement on any of these issues. I hear optimism that, you know, in your committee on the Hill generally that, there's a sense that the harms are now perhaps after these whistleblower leaks are, are more clear or, or certainly that there's a thunderous, you know, fusillade of headlines that make them clear. Um, but I also hear a lot of, of pessimism from folks in the tech policy community that these things may not rise to the top of the agenda. What do you make of that? Where, where will we get to in this Congress? I think there's been a, a cumulative effect among consumers 
among ordinary uh, Americans that persuades them that the time of self-regulation is over, that we have heard now years, literally years. I have uh, seen um, Mark Zuckerberg at hearing after hearing, but he's not the only one. The big tech companies and, and the leaders come on. And I think what consumers are saying, uh-uh, we can't leave this enormous field this, uh, that is dominating our lives unregulated anymore, that self-regulation does not work. So there's a real taste for it right now. So I, I do feel optimistic that, uh, and, and many of my colleagues now have introduced bills. States have begun to act on their, on their own to, to rein them in. And, and so I think this is a, a moment. Now, not this particular moment because there's so much going on to try and get important legislation um, passed with, uh, you know, the infrastructure bill and the, that, that we're discussing as we discuss right now and the Build Back Better bill. So, you know, we're, we're very busy um, right now, but I think that uh, particularly next year, and we're preparing for next year in the, uh, in the subcommittee and reaching out to our, our members and to the, the, the public to give their suggestions. I think next year's the year that we're gonna actually see bills passed, absolutely. I'm writing about Facebook uh, and this ethical conundrum of, of its governance, the fact that you've got a CEO of a, of a public company that you know, answers to seemingly no one. You know, he's in a very unique position um, in control of the board. I don't know if you have any, any, any point of view on that. Uh, you've mentioned well, a couple of times the idea that you know, Facebook seems not to be possible to hold to account. They're too big. And I think the antitrust issues, which are not in my particular committee, but the antitrust issues are very, very important. I think Facebook has to be broken down. It's just too big. When you've got a a, a company that is larger than the accumulation of the major nations of the world being involved in things like genocide around the world um, because of the use of, uh, of its online platform, um, I, I think we're, we're talking about their exceeding boundaries of any regulation that we have in the world. And so I think they're too big. And so I, I certainly support all the efforts um, that are going on to um, have antitrust activity against Facebook and to break them up into smaller pieces. I think it becomes dangerous to our democracies to our uh, ability to function really well as a nation and to defend our own laws um, and uh, to, to make sure that people everywhere are treated well. And, and so, yes, I do have a strong feeling about that. And hopefully that this is going to move along. And there is a lot of interest in that right now. I'm very grateful to you taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you so much.
If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. One of the people on the Tech Policy Press masthead is Melissa Ryan, the author of the Control-Alt-Right-Delete newsletter, which covers extremism and has grown to more than 15,000 weekly readers. Melissa has spent more than a decade working at the intersection of politics, media, culture, and technology. Today, she uses her expertise to help people, policymakers, and institutions combat online extremism and toxicity as the CEO of her firm, Card Strategies. Last month at Netroots Nation, a conference for progressive organizers, Melissa organized a panel of activists to discuss how platform power and disinformation affect their communities and how they plan to fight it. Her guests included Bridget Todd, who drives feminist cultural and political change at Ultraviolet, Brennan Sun, a senior strategist at Media Matters, which tracks right-wing disinformation, and Michael Koo, the co-chair of the Climate Disinformation Coalition at Friends of the Earth and co-CEO of Upshift Strategies. Here's Melissa to kick off the discussion. Uh, hello. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, we're glad to have you here with us for today's panel, The Threats of Big Tech and, tech and Disinformation to Social Movements. My name is Melissa Ryan. I'm the editor of Control-Alt-Right-Delete, the CEO of Card Strategies, and I am proud to be a board member for Netroots Nation. Uh, When we planned this panel uh, several months ago, we had no idea that this would, uh, it would be quite so prescient this week uh, with all the news, uh, with the leaks from Facebook and the whistleblower's testimony before Congress. Uh, but for those of us who have been working on these issues, a lot of the news we know are things that we've known for a long time. And it's validation uh, that the tech platforms continue to cause hate, harassment, and harm to a vast majority of their users. Uh, the problem is intersectional. You find me a social movement, and I, I will tell you there are, are folks with, that have been harmed by uh, uh, the tech platforms in it. Uh, and the solution, because of that, has to be intersectional, too. We can't just take care of this in a, in a vacuum. Uh, so today you're going to hear from uh, some activists who have been on the front line of this and are experts in their, their various movements. I am going to try to talk as little as possible, and we're going to have a very uh, heavy presentation, heavy upfront, and then plenty of time for a few questions from me and audience questions. Uh, and with that, I'm going to have the panelists uh, introduce themselves and do their presentations, starting with Brennan. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Brennan Sun, and I'm a senior strategist at Media Matters. If you're not familiar with Media Matters, we are a progressive media watchdog and research center focused on correcting conservative misinformation in the media. So a lot of that looks like monitoring Fox News and identifying you know, trends and problematic narratives coming from there. It also includes holding mainstream media accountable and primarily for the purposes of this presentation, a huge portion of what we're doing is working to track trends and disinformation and bigotry on social media like Facebook, like TikTok, like YouTube, then use that research to hold the um, these companies, uh, these platforms accountable. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how the right is using um, social media to target schools, um, particularly how they're using inflamed culture war topics like critical race theory and trans kids. Um, I was the um, LGBTQ program director at Media Matters for four years, so I have a lot of expertise in how the right covers 
trans uh, and LGBTQ issues. Um, and also how the right has really weaponized masks, kind of taking all of these topics um, and lumping them under the same umbrella, per particularly in order to disrupt school board meetings, intimidate educators and you know, push back against inclusive policies. So one of the things that we like to look at to see kind of the disparities in, in misinformation and content on Facebook is the share of voice on face, political Facebook pages about various topics. So we looked at coverage from about a year, posts on political Facebook pages about critical race theory and about trans kids. And you can see that the conversation on both topics is overwhelmingly owned by the right. Now, an asterisk for the critical race theory, of course, the critical race theory is a phrase that the right has really domineered. Um, but you can see that any pushback against it is just very, very slim compared to how much it has spread. For trans kids, I think in some ways it's even more scary because there's been so many, like, you know, there's so many great things that you could be writing about, about the trans community, but instead the conversation is largely owned by the right. So what does this do to our social movements? Well, CRT, you know, it's not just an electoral strategy that's trying to rile up, you know, suburban parents. It's also like a real like form of racial resentment and backlash to the Black Lives Matter movement that's leading to censoring of teachers, uh, dangerous legislation in many states, and really a whitewashing of our country's history for a lot of students. And when it comes to trans kids, it's a similar thing. We're seeing an unprecedented wave of legislation targeting trans youth, particularly uh, trans athletes and healthcare for trans youth, which is what a lot of the right-wing posts on Facebook are about. And I'd also like to step back and say that this is a pretty strong mirror of what we're seeing on Fox News and OAN and Newsmax as well. Um, so the right has really like gone all in on these topics and we're seeing dangerous legislation that's ostracizing trans kids, keeping them from not just accessing life-saving healthcare in states like my own home state of Arkansas, uh, but also from you know, life-saving and important social activities like athletes. And at the end of the day, I think what really scares me about this conversation on Facebook is that parents who are reading this, you know, not only might they be protesting their school boards, but they might actually have a trans kid who they may you know, reject and put at risk because of some of this information that they're consuming. You can see here that there's been like some trend lines. It's been consistently owned by the right. Um, I'd like to add a, a note that we've been seeing a bit of a spike this last week um, with critical race theory coverage uh, just around the DOJ is investigating some of the harassment against school boards that I'll be talking about. I mean, you can see kind of a steady, you know, clip of anti-trans content coming out as well in the past year. I think it's also important to note, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been talking about these culture wars and particularly how they're targeting schools and students, is that when it comes to COVID, I think the share of voice as far as right-wing pages is a little bit less stark. Um, as far as the coverage goes, it's a little bit more balanced. Um, but I think the quality of what is happening on Facebook for the right is even scarier. So there's, you know, particularly in Facebook groups, which are a key organizing tool. So we identified 171 anti-mask schools with nearly 200,000 members. And again, these members are like often very engaged because they're community-based, they're local, uh, they're showing up at their school boards. And 60% of these focus on children and or schools. Uh, we also found 
284 anti-vax groups that Facebook largely did not take action against. What's happened is like, if you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, uh, right-wing actors were using uh, Facebook to organize you know, anti-lockdown protests, anti-mask protests. They were, you know, defying public health measures. And I think in this, you know, recent school season over the summer to September, we saw uh, the right utilize some of these tactics to attack, you know, trans-inclusive policies and to go after, you know, what they call critical race theory in schools. And what's really notable is how they've merged all of these topics under one umbrella. So if you think about different Facebook groups and you think about a Facebook group that is dedicated to anti-mask measures, we see very frequently that they'll be organizing rallies and protests that are also uh, addressing critical race theory or, you know, showing up to protest trans-inclusive policies. And same for an anti-CRT group. They're, you know, really unifying over the mask mandates as well. And I think it's important to think about this as like a pretty long-standing war that the right has had on public education and teachers unions as well. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the right wants people to homeschool their kids so that they're, you know, not being, in, so, you know, indoctrinated, as they say. Um, and the goal here is not just to push back against inclusive policies, but it's also in some cases to like recall school boards um, and get right-wing actors there where they can be directly influencing the curriculum and policies that affect children and their ability to learn about, you know, race in our country or to have policies that keep them safe in whether that's in school activities, you know, having equal access to school activities or, you know, being called by the correct pronouns and name by their teachers. And this has had like a very specific direct real world consequence. Um, This online organizing has moved offline and often very like public, you know, nationwide story uh, ways. Um, There's been chaos at numerous school board meetings. If you followed the Loudoun Loudoun County, Virginia school board meeting, there was a debate around critical race theory, as well as a uh, teacher who refused to call a trans student by their pronouns. And we saw like an arrest, an injury and coverage on Fox News and just like really a snowballing effect of anger around this. Um, We've seen direct harassment of teachers and and school board members, including outside of their own homes, um, death threats, all sorts of things. and at the end of the day, like it's putting, you know, our, our, you know, to bring it back to the topic of this panel, it's putting a lot of social movements kind of under one bucket and putting a lot of them at risk, whether that is education or racial equity, trans inclusion or public safety. So it's a quite a grim picture on Facebook that I've painted. And I'm sure that the other panelists are not, are uh, also going to continue demonstrating this trend on other issues. Thank you so much, Brennan. Bridget Todd is up next. Hey, everyone. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Brennan. Um, My name is Bridget Todd. I'm the Director of Communications with Ultraviolet. We are a feminist organization that works to create a cost for sexism and misogyny. Um, I don't have slides. I had a whole thing prepared uh, that I've been working on for a few weeks. But if you're anything like me, you probably have been watching the news today, yesterday, this week about Facebook and you're fucking enraged. (laughs) So I just wanted to spend this time really just talking about what we know and how we got to this moment. So I wanna take y'all back, a little history lesson. The year is 2003. 
Before Facebook, Zuckerberg made a website called FaceMash. It is a platform to rate women on their looks. Uh, here's what Zuck himself had to say in his blog when he made this. He writes, I'm a little intoxicated, not gonna lie. So what if it isn't even 10 p.m. on a Tuesday night? What? The Kirkland dorm Facebook is open on my desktop and some of these people have pretty horrendous Facebook pictures. I almost wanna put some of these faces next to pictures of farm animals and have people vote on which is more attractive. Uh, if you didn't go to college in the early aughts like I did, back then a Facebook was just like a page that had all of the different students' pictures on them, not the platform that Zuckerberg would go on to make. So FaceMash luckily was taken down and a year later, Facebook was born. And I share this to remind everyone that, not, that regardless of what Facebook's PR tries to say, there is misogyny at the very core of these platforms. Platforms like Facebook have such a grip on our democracy and our communities and our organizing, and yet they were founded on raiding women in this incredibly hateful, sexist way, comparing us to barnyard animals. Here's another little trip down memory lane when it comes to Facebook. In 2015, we found out that Facebook's engineers were accessing the data of women, women in their lives, their, their personal lives that they were angry with or had problems with, women who were basically strangers that they hoped to date. Here's a great excerpt from the book, An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. A Facebook engineer was accessing a woman's Facebook page before they had even gone out on a single date. The book says, a Facebook engineer saw that this woman regularly visited Dolores Park in San Francisco. He found her there one day, enjoying the sun with her friends. Now, that's obviously pretty creepy. Like, imagine if you were just, you know, talking to somebody on a dating app. They work at Facebook, so they use your private Facebook information to find you in real life. Creepy. When this was pointed out to Mark Zuckerberg, the book goes on to say that Zuckerberg was clearly taken aback and upset. But curiously, no one in the room pointed out that it was a system that he himself had designed and implemented. Um, and I say that to say that the sexism and racism and misogyny and the hate that we see at the heart of platforms like Facebook is no accident. It is by design. And I feel that it's so common for folks to really leave that out of the story. These are not accidents or some sort of bug or something that they're scrambling to fix. They are at the baked into the heart of many of these platforms. And I think that it's time for platforms and the leaders who have gotten rich off them to face accountability for the ways that they've not only spread things like disinformation, misinformation, online harassment, hate speech, and the kinds of things that we were just hearing about when it comes to CRT on platforms, but actually profiting from them. And so at Ultraviolet, we're really working hard to make sure that folks know that this is not just a tech issue, it is a gender justice and racial justice issue. When social media platforms are allowed to become cesspools of racist lies, dangerous conspiracy theories and harassment, we know that it is women, particularly women of color and black women who suffer. We know that disinformation online harassment disproportionately target and impact people from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, so you might be thinking like, what does this actually look like in the real world? Well, one of them is a lot of what we just heard about from Brennan and Media Matters, right? This weaponization of our identities to drive wedges between people and create chaos and these filter bubbles that can be really dangerous and that they don't stay online. They have these real world impacts. It also looks like things like spreading confusion and fear about vaccines and fertility or uh, exposing existing fractures that really do exist in our communities. And rather than working to you know, curb them, exploiting them and inflaming them and keeping us all more divided. It also looks like lies about our bodies being codified into dangerous laws like SB8. It looks like racist, sexist lies about women in politics and having a digital media ecosystem ready-made to amplify and lend credibility to those lies. And we know that these lies really do undermine all women of color. 
Women of color are overwhelmingly targeted for disinformation campaigns, and studies make it really clear that the persistent threat has a silencing effect on women. It pushes us even further into the margins and keeps us from doing things like running for office or even just expressing our political opinions online, because who's going to want to speak up about an issue that's happening in their community or an issue that they're passionate about if they know they're going to be attacked with racist, sexist, misogyny, and hate on Facebook for doing so? Now, the goal of this kind of thing is to get women to check out of our democracy and to just shut up. And we cannot allow for this. Uh, that's why over the last year, Ultraviolet has made combating harmful disinformation on platforms like Facebook a gender justice priority because we know that part of building an anti-racist feminist future is also building a digital media landscape where all women can fully participate. Um, and I'm really, really excited to be here and talk more about how awful Facebook is, how awful Mark Zuckerberg is, and how they really have failed women and women of color and created a landscape that allows for, for our own identities to be cruelly weaponized against us. So that's all I got, super excited to be here. Uh, yeah, let's, let's do this. Thank you, all right. Uh, and Michael, you wanna close this out? For sure. Um, and it's wonderful to be on a panel with the two of you. And I think, you know, Bridget, as you talk, um, the, the concept of inclusion or exclusion by design, that their goal consistently, the platforms, is to make it an individual problem, what is a structural issue that they've created. And so it leads to quandaries of people say, like, do I have to leave? The, the point is that we're trying to create online spaces that don't destroy our communities. So I'm going to talk just briefly about the, the climate side of that, but it, um, as Melissa pointed out at the very beginning, it is entirely intersectional. And we've uh, been uh, lucky enough to have a good amount of research to show exactly how that is. And I'll uh, walk you through a few of these slides. Um, so the first thing is that, you know, from the outset on any issue, whether you're working on race, gender, or climate change, the control of our, our channels is shrinking by the kinds of graphs that Brennan showed at the beginning. Uh, just the overwhelming ability of them to dominate what um, is our normal channels of doing basic advocacy. And what we find in the particular field of climate uh, climate change is that climate denial, saying that it doesn't exist, doesn't really exist in the mainstream anymore. It's it's lost its social license to say it's not. Maybe all the storms, all the floods are somehow getting to people. But the only place where you find the climate denial does exist is on Facebook and other social media platforms. And to not give them a free pass, it is the worst on Facebook. So um, this the push that we do is just this focusing on the fact that mainstream media outlets, and actually Media Matters did some excellent research uh, during one of those case studies I'm gonna get into of where they are doing a great job of debunking all the, um, all the climate denialism online. But the last place that it gets to truly flourish and be amplified is on social media. And, you know, one of the challenges of working on this issue is that every day there's something new and more terrible. You read the book that uh, Bridget uh, referenced and, you know, it tells you just one more deep level of things that you already knew about the, the fundamentals of the platform. And even uh, you know, Francis Hogan's uh, testimony this week fundamentally didn't change a bunch of things. It just proved how much worse they are as a, a company. Um, so we uh, studied, we uh, work with a, a firm called Graphica, and we studied the circle of climate change deniers online, especially on from Twitter, and put a, a circle around that group. And over the course of last year, what we saw was a marriage between climate deniers and QAnon, which was truly frightening. And so I talked about the old climate deniers that have existed since Al Gore, 
Um, there's a new phase of climate deniers and they are much more episodic. They have much greater vitriol. So this uh, person, Naomi said it, was, uh, came out of paid by the Heartland Institute, which is a climate denying organization. Um, and she came out in the last March. Her star was quite uh, big at the beginning, it faded quickly. And then within two months, she started talking about a lot of QAnon theories and her popularity rose. So I think what everyone here will point to is it's the system of uh, incentivizing the uh, the worst of, of uh, online conversations that we that were uh, fighting. So Grafka observed a, a huge growth, obviously, as people know, of QAnon. But the marriage of the two, opportunistically, people who don't necessarily care about climate change, but they say, well, let me use that today. Let me use gender the next day. And we saw this one band of what were originally climate deniers rove from issue to issue. You know, they were misogynists after Kamala Harris was, was uh, named VP. They were anti-maskers in, in April. It was one group that you can actually put a really clear circle around. So we dug into one particular case study that I'll just spend a few minutes on. And you may not remember that Texas had this uh, record storm, record number of deaths from a storm in uh, February earlier this year. And it was a storm caused by climate change uh, in a state that produces most of that. And the right wing was so brilliant in right away instantly blaming the exact opposite thing. So they decided to blame wind power for what was a lack of uh, good energy infrastructure and obviously the cause of climate change itself. So we did a network analysis of it and we saw that one small tweet um, from a person named Oilfield Rando then got picked up the next day by a larger account that you can see here. And then within the next day it was picked up by Tucker Carlson. And then on the fourth day, the, the, the words uh, that renewable energy fro uh, destroyed our, our uh, energy grid, that came out of the governor's lips. So you can see in four days, this image, which is from a Swedish windmill from 2014, and was just repurposed to say this is what happened in Texas. Absolutely false, provably false, um, went completely viral. So we did a little study of it, and we found that 99% of the viral, the viral uh, engagement wasn't even fact-checked. And I know that we all have many issues with fact-checking as a process and how opaque it is, but they weren't even fact-checking that information. Instead, Facebook comes out with these new programs to... Um, have quizzes and people's feeds or to engage people to actually take uh, the action. And again, that's them continually saying that this is other people's problem. They're just an innocent bystander. When we can see it's their algorithms that they, Mark Zuckerberg, designs and authorizes that is causing all of the uh, um, division. So we focus on all the, the platforms, but currently uh, the worst of them is, uh, is Facebook. Also, obviously, call on Congress and the administration to take far greater action. And after the couple of weeks that Facebook has had, hopefully we are a lot closer to that. Thank you. Just as a, a first broad question, the conventional wisdom that, that I see seems to be that Facebook's latest scandal hit a, is hitting in a different way uh, than the previous scandals. And that this time there might be some actual consequences, uh, which as we know, the company hasn't really faced yet. But all of you up here, you've been in this fight for a long time. Uh, are you feeling bullish that Facebook might finally face the music for the harm it's done? Or will this just be another flash in the pan that folks uh, will forget about in a, in a few days, weeks, months? Let's start with Bridget. And then if Brandon and Michael want to chime in, they can. 
Yeah, I think it's a great question. Like what an interesting and exciting time to be in the platform accountability space. Um, I, I feel two ways about it. You know, when the news first broke, as, you know, we've been doing this work for so long. There have been so many things that come out of that Facebook where I think, oh, certainly this is going to be the thing that gets them an actual consequence. Um, and then I've been wrong and it's like business as usual. But I read this piece about Facebook's current standing that I thought was really interesting. And they pointed out that like, a company that is doing really well, why would that company sort of be trying to create a product that's for like 13 year olds and young people? Why would they be trying to make inroads there? And it's because they're actually maybe not as powerful as we maybe all think they are. And so, you know, they're hemorrhaging young young folks like my little cousins who are up on technology and love their social media. They're not on Facebook. Facebook is where they go to like connect with their mom and their like uncool aunt like me, right? And so the fact that Facebook is doing these strategies to to lure and lock in younger users, things like toddler playdates on the platform and, and doing an Instagram for like 13 year olds, I think that demonstrates that Facebook is really up against the ropes. And you know, I think this new uh, Wall Street Journal investigation and the 60 Minutes investigations, like I think it demonstrates that this is really breaking through with more than just the usual suspects of techie folks like ourselves. You know, everyday people who are saying, well, gee, I don't want my daughter to be harmed by Instagram. I don't want this corrosive force in her life to be something that makes her, her life all that much harder. And so I would actually say, yeah, I'm hopeful that this could be something that creates, I don't know, an actual consequence for Facebook and the billionaires who run it. Yeah, I would say, I think that's a great, a great point. Like, hopeful is the only thing we can really be saying at this time. You can't really, like, I, I personally, it's hard to feel, like, totally optimistic or confident that things will be moving in a positive direction. Um, but I think that there's a few things that are, like, very unique about this moment. Um, one, I think one of the things that the whistleblower said that I thought was really great, it was, like, you know, 10% of... Uh, only 10% of cigarette smokers get cancer. And if only 20, like if 20% of, you know, young girls and teens are having like these horrible mental health side effects from using Instagram, like that is a major problem. And I think like the comparisons from, you know, senators and from other, you know, media outlets and stuff to this being like a big tobacco moment, I think is important and also makes me have some hope that they're going to take it seriously. And I think one of the key things that I would like, one of the key actionable things that I hope comes out of this is that their research is subpoenaed and put out there that so that researchers <laughs> who are not being paid by Facebook, um, researchers like us, can go through that research and like take a bigger microscope to it, just like we've been able to do with what the whistleblower has put out there. Um, I think just like you know, putting out the data is really key, and see, you know, we we know that they know so many things that we don't know, um, and that's a really actionable thing that like the Senate can do. So I'm hopeful that you know we can use this moment to get more information, get data out there, and then, you know, get some of these people on the record in front of these committees to be talking more about it. Because like, I mean, frankly, from what we've seen, we know that Mark Zuckerberg and some of these other people have blatantly lied about a lot of this stuff. And I think, you know, when you're thinking about what drives Facebook, they only care about profit. Figuring out re regulatory ways to disrupt that profit is possible, but going to be a challenge. But I think putting up some, you know, very real legal, you know, legal consequences could be really, you know, impactful as well.
Yeah, I'll add to that and sort of plus one to what both of you said. This is, you know, it's it's a moment where people actually, I think the word algorithm is now entering to the public uh, widespread. People understand that there is such a thing as an algorithm and that it's controlled by certain people. So it's his algorithm that is causing these things. So that hopefully is uh, to me something that can lead to, as Brennan said, disclosing the data. It really is our first thing. Because if you think that we're outraged now, wait till we see the whole deck, right? It's, it's only going to get worse. So I, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a bit of a cynic looking at an $84 billion or a company that makes $84 billion a year, which is pretty rare that just five years ago was a, a fraction of that. That's, that's a juggernaut. But if we can focus all of our activist energy, not on feeling like we need to participate in any of their ridiculous games, but focus getting Congress, which has abdicated most responsibility for the last two decades, focusing on them just to take that first step of disclosing the data. I think that might be our, our, our true watershed moment. And the last thing I'll just say is it's so amazing every time we do a panel with either Media Matters or, or Bridget and Ultraviolet that, you know, the way Facebook is ripping apart our communities on different issue areas, whether you're trans, um, whether you're a woman, it is actually remarkably identical how it's ripping people apart in the same ways. And it might be actually that that power of them to affect so many people equally that hopefully unites us when we all see the exact same thing. Thank you. Well, y'all are making me hopeful, which is a strange feeling for me uh, around Facebook. So regulation has been in the conversation also in a big way this week, uh, again, thanks to the whistleblower in the Wall Street Journal. Um, assuming that we had a conference, a Congress that actually functions, and I am the first to admit that we don't, uh, what are the kinds of regulation that you would like to see? I think there's a bill that a lot of us have, have focused on that is looking at bills that look at algorithms um, and data access. So generally, without getting into anyone specific, bills that look at the discrimination that's baked into algorithms, algorithmic justice, and disclosing the data. I think those are the first two things. There are a whole bunch of other uh, more complex things, and very easily their side will try and play the quote, free speech card. And I definitely put quotations around that because it's a false argument. Um, but those that's the sort of direction that um, I th we're trying to focus on. Yeah, I would echo that, you know, more transparency is key. I think, you know, I think the algorithms, you know, Facebook can moderate all the content it wants. It doesn't, it doesn't do a good job at it. It needs to do way better. But like at the end of the day, that's like such a small part of the problem considering so much of the stuff that's out there is that's dangerous, misinformative and bigoted, like doesn't always go against their policies, but it spreads at such a rapid clip and more than, you know, actual good information. Um, so I think the algorithms and you know how it prefaces bigotry and misinformation is something that is like key to take a look at as well. I agree with everything that everyone said, especially Brennan's point on transparency. And I would just add, I think that a lot of of restoring public trust is important to like creating consequences. I think it's Dr. Joan Donovan from the Shortest Institute that likes to talk about sort of the comparison between platforms and big tobacco. I think that like if we all accepted that it's not okay for big tobacco companies to lie to the American public about whether or not there's a link between smoking and cancer, we need to then accept that like it is then not okay for platforms to lie about the damaging impacts that their platforms have had 
on our society. And so creating real actionable consequences for what happens for when a company like Facebook lies about the impacts of their products in order to restore that faith that the public needs to have, that their institutions are going to be looking out for them and not just allowing a big company to lie for profit in a way that's going to get us hurt. And I would just add directly on that, Zuckerberg's testimony in March, his comment on the effect on teens of Instagram was so out of far out of step with the research we now know he had looked at and said, don't worry about it. That to me, I mean, I believe he was under oath, so I, I wish I was a lawyer, but that seems like that's a great starting point to put someone behind jail. To, to switch tracks a little bit, all of us as organizers, we use these same tech platforms for activism every day. And it always kind of amuses me a bit when we use Facebook to attack Facebook, uh, but there's a tension there. Can you all speak to the tension of relying on the same platforms that we know are causing the harm in activism? And also, is there a way for us to stop using social media if we wanted to, or is using social media as our activism just part of what we need to do? I mean, it's a, t it's a tension that I feel both in my professional life as an organizer and a strategist, but also just as a person who likes to stay in communication with my loved ones and my friends and family. Um, I think, how can I put this? I think that when we had that Facebook outage this week, we saw the real damaging impact of what happens when we sort of put all of our eggs into one basket as digital organizers and as folks who show up online. When the rug is pulled out from under us, it's like, oh, I'm unable to communicate in any way. I don't have anything, right? So I am wary of this idea that like we just we just have to use platforms like Facebook in order to organize, you know. Organi great organizing was done before Facebook ever was a thing, before Zuckerberg was ever born. And I'm sure that if Facebook imploded tomorrow, great organizing would continue to be done. Um, I say that for myself personally, you know, I have definitely been part of the chorus that's like delete Facebook, you know, don't be on there. But I have a Facebook myself for organizing work. And the way that I've often described it is like, Working by yourself, we probably individually are not going to be able to, to topple Facebook's stranglehold on our democracies and our communities, but we can make individual choices to lessen that stranglehold. So whether it looks like I'm not going to have the app on my phone, I'm only going to access it on the browser when I want to, I'm not going to get caught in their mindless scrolling, you know, I'm going to turn off my notifications, whatever it looks like for you, finding individual ways that we can all make platforms like Facebook less a part of our, our discourse and our democracy, I think are really important. Full stop, these leaders have like abdicated their responsibility and they've like done nothing. And so it is like their responsibility to do this. However, there are small things that we can all do individually to sort of lessen that, that stranglehold they have uh, while we're waiting for them to step up to the plate and be leaders. And so I always like to compare it to sort of like climate change, right? Like you know, in, we, we, it's, it's up to big business and like corporations and policymakers, people with power to do something to, you know, help climate and justice. However, there are small things that we can all do in the absence of that leadership. And so um, I, it's a tough one. It's something that I really struggle with. And I, I'm so curious to hear what other folks think about the way that they personally use Facebook while having these very intense uh, problems with the platform. Yeah, I have a slightly different perspective. And I think it's maybe a bit of a cynical one as well. I think like, this is a weird thing to compare it to, but like you could compare it to gerrymandering for instance, because what's happening is like the right, they are on Facebook. The information asymmetry is there, you know, 75% of posts about trans kids are coming from the right. And without liberals without activists and organizers without people putting out good information that number is just going to shrink so it's almost like this unfortunate 
like situation in which in some ways we're forced to play ball or, you know, go into that space or do that kind of thing that's not so pretty um, in order to combat it. Because if we're not sharing that good information on Facebook, if we're not having, you know, and I wouldn't recommend somebody go into like a right-wing group and post like pro-trans content. But like, the fact is like, it may really be impactful if you have, are friends with your mother's friend and who, you know, who has a trans grandchild and they see some kind of post or, you know, who has a kid going to one of these schools that's trying to pass a trans inclusive policy. And so there are real people being influenced by the stuff that's posted there. And so I think one of my fears of like getting people to log off Facebook is the people who are, would be logging off would be the people putting out information that we hope to see, you know, spread better there. We, you know, we're hoping that accurate public health information is spread there and that, you know, accurate information about race and you know women and misogyny and even like reporting on how how those things are so over you know overrepresented by the right so i think that's like one tough thing about getting off facebook is if we're not there then we're not like combating that dangerous information where it's spread that said we're there and we're putting out information and it is just such a small slice of the pie that you know it is quite an uphill battle but that is one thing that i think is like a perspective that i think about when i think about like should people get on or off and i'll probably uh, add another uh, different perspective uh my analogy is actually the plastic bottle um and 30 years 40 years of people being told to recycle to save the planet which um was a corporate ploy by coke and pepsi to get us out of glass bottles that were actually far superior for the environment, not to mention your, your personal health. Um, and that kind of redirection that it has to be you one bottle at a time when, you know, 8% of bottles ever get recycled anyway, um, is just a great corporate hoodwinking of, of people's um, energy to think it's their problem for something that the fossil fuel industry that has designed and then seeds the disinformation. I think the only exception to that is, as Bridget says, like for people's personal health to limit it and put it into a box so that you're not dragged into all of the psychological issues that are now very well documented and none of us should feel insecure talking about that is super important for self-care. Um, but as far as fighting it, it's, uh, it's, it's their monster. It's, we have people and a government that we created in this world that, that should be regulating them. I know this was my question, but I also want to add that I'm always leery of individual actions in place of systemic problems. I feel like so often what is expected is for individuals to change their behavior and there's no acknowledgement of the systemic issues, um, which is sort of where I've always come down on individual Facebook and Twitter use. Like I both think Facebook should shut down. I still have a Facebook account. Um, and sometimes it's attention for me, but sometimes it's like, actually it's not my problem to fix all the internet. Like it's an individual decision will only make so much. Sophie asks, how much disinformation on Facebook is born and spread within the platform rather than initially coming from the dark corners of the web like 8chan? Brennan, I'm going to suggest you answer this one first. Yeah, I, I think honestly most of it comes, you know, is born and bred within the platform. Certainly there are like, you know, disinformation campaigns that are organized on 4chan and 8chan to very mixed success, honestly. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. They'll be trying to do, uh, get something to be trend on Twitter or whatever. But like, the reality is, is like not, you know, very, very small portion of the population of the right is actually on 4chan and 8chan compared to who is on Facebook. And so I don't think that like, 
I, you know, I think without the those far right corners, we're still going to see pretty similar stuff. I mean, if you went into a, you know, one of these anti-mask, anti-CRT, anti-trans parent Facebook groups, you're going to be seeing maybe not, you know, I, I don't know if you spend a lot of time on HN, it's pretty like violent. So you might see a little bit less violent imagery, but like the, the gist of what they're saying and getting at is the same. And the organizing that they're doing um, can be a lot more localized on Facebook. I mean, most, many of these groups are dedicated to, you know, specific school districts, specific areas in a way that is not really possible to my knowledge on HN, 4chan. I mean, you, I mean, in theory you could, but they're, more accessible to other people. Um, and then I think too, looking at like the narratives that are spreading, like as far as popular content, like that, and you know, our, our Daily Wire writers and Tucker Carlson producers going to 4chan and stuff to get information, definitely. Um, but like a lot of the actual content that's spreading comes from those like big influencers like Ben Shapiro, who, you know, honestly just re they you know they can repackage the same old bigotry a different way every week and still go viral on the platform um so i would say the blame is, is on facebook alone and it's like the impact of those far-right message boards is minimal when it comes to like what those groups can do and what um what kind of content's going viral <laughs> those uh message boards are still a threat but i think that you know the majority of stuff on facebook you know is often coming from there I mean, there's a reason Trump is suing to get back on Twitter, right? People, when, when the, there's this false argument, people are like, well, you can't just deplatform the bad people because they'll just create an equally worse thing elsewhere. It hasn't happened. Platformer and all these other, uh, you know, right-wing only social networks, they're just like, they're, they, each one flails because the, the real audience that they need to convert to change society is on these major platforms. Question for Brennan specifically, but curious to hear from y'all. Becca Lewis made the case in a Stanford presentation on Tuesday that the rabbit hole isn't actually radicalizing people, especially on YouTube. Looking at the whole media landscape, what's your take? I did not see that specific presentation, but I do believe that the rabbit hole is radicalizing people. We actually just did a study about a similar thing on um, TikTok, where a user, we created a, a fake user, followed like 12 transphobic accounts, and by like, after about 100 accounts, we're starting to get like white supremacist content, neo-Nazi content, extremely misogynistic content, and only interacting with the transphobic videos. So I, you know, just on TikTok alone, especially on YouTube, Facebook's group algorithm, you know, recommending that you join more groups against public health measures and racist groups. I think it's absolutely radicalizing people because people are also, I mean, it's different on TikTok versus Facebook, where Facebook people might be finding more communities and getting more involved on a one-on-one -on -one level. But like the TikTok example, for instance, you're being exposed to content you may have never ever seen before or come into contact if it was not for kind of the rabbit hole. So I'm not familiar uh, with Becca Lewis's uh, research. I, you know, I, I definitely am interested in seeing it, but that's not my understanding of the problem. I think that these, these <laughs> I, I'm pretty can definitely think that these uh, platforms are radicalizing users. And I'd love to add one thing to that if I could. But Brandon, is that the study with uh, Abby Richards from TikTok? Yeah, she has yeah. a great so, video on it too. Yeah, I could not like recommend her content enough. Such an interesting um, researcher and makes such interesting content on disinformation, particularly on TikTok. And I wanted to say something, which is that, you know, 
just to sort of level set, the way that algorithms and like rabbit holes work on YouTube versus Facebook versus Twitter versus TikTok are all going to be a little bit different. And so um, I one reason why I really like the study that Media Matters did with Abby Richards is that they do focus on TikTok. And I think that's important because, you know, as an, as an old, I'm like, oh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, you know, the big three. But there are so many platforms that like are popular with younger people. I believe that the average user on TikTok is like, 13, so like pretty young. And so it's important to, to make sure that we're doing research and looking into platforms that aren't just like the big ones that we're always hearing about, the ones that are maybe flying under the radar a little bit that folks are not really doing maybe as much research as they should be doing. It's important that those, those platforms are also included in the conversation. So I'm really thrilled that Media Matters and researchers like Abby Richards are doing that work um, on those platforms that are so popular with like young people who are really sort of coming into understanding their own ideologies and their own identities. And I'd add from the, the climate change side, the only the, the research that was really good that one of our partners uh, that many of us work with, Avaz, put out last year, they looked specifically at climate change disinformation on YouTube. And they showed how a casual surf just looking for climate change very quickly with a recommendation algorithm took you into the flat earth society. So that that's pretty well documented that YouTube is, in fact, actually one of the worst for climate change denial because of that. So I haven't read this other, other research, but um, there's certainly fewer people in the middle on climate change. And I think that that's the same for a lot of issues. So I will just add that I, I didn't see Becca's talk yesterday, but I'm very familiar with her work. Um, she's done a lot of work on YouTube in particular and the Alternative Influence Network and how YouTube influencers are able to um, build audiences for each other without algorithmic amplification. So it is worth checking out Becca's work if you haven't seen it. Again, with the caveat that I haven't seen the Stanford presentation. Um, so I know some of you have interfaced uh, with Congress. So if, if anyone feels comfortable talking about uh, work they've done, legislative work they've done or sharing uh, data with Congress, uh, this is a good opportunity. I've not done a lot of that work myself, but I do know that the Disinformation Defense League is working to um, put forward like policy uh, positions uh, to make sure that disinformation, we're, we're kind of coming at it from a policy standpoint. I know that for us, oftentimes we're talking about like platform accountability, working with the platforms, but we're, we sort of, it's easy to sort of sidestep the policy and lawmaker piece. And so I'm glad that there are folks sort of working on that issue. Um, I'm not personally working on it, but I know that folks are. Yeah, I would say just like nothing's off the table as far as like what Media Matters and other organizations are doing and like, you know, making sure that relevant stakeholders, wherever they may be, are, are you know, looped into this data. Yeah, and I think you even see with the Facebook files that those were shared with the relevant committee from the outset, which is a, probably one of our best data troves lately. Um, and I, our environmental co coalition works with a number of offices to say, here's the, the obvious case. I think, I think what everybody needs is more calls into Congress uh, so that they realize that they can't just spend the next three years studying the issue. Do we know if these right-wing CRT, et cetera, group pages are being funded by specific organizations or are they happening organically? I doubt that a lot of them, the pages, the groups are being funded um, by orgs. Definitely, like, there is a massive disinformation campaign being funded by the right, by Heritage, um, by other right-wing orgs that are, like, trying to inflame CRT. But I think, like, the specific Facebook groups probably don't really they probably don't honestly need that much money to do what they're doing. And I think that there, you know, are probably like Republican operatives or like, you know, right wing people in, you know, who may have those connections, but like they're really widespread. Like these, I think like 
especially if you look at the gamut of anti-mask, anti-CRT, all of these groups. So I, I don't see, like, I think that the the major groups have better ways to fund this kind of stuff than, like, putting them into, like, specific localized groups. Um, there, 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 there might be some, and there's probably, like, networks of, you know, influence there. But I think that a lot of it is organic based off of just, like, again, like, being recommended into these groups and growing from there, word of mouth, um, seeing, you know conversations about specific school districts blow up on Tucker Carlson and things like that. Um, but I don't want to undermine the fact that there is a very like well-funded, well-orchestrated messaging strategy going on around CRT specifically and, and about trans kids as well. Yeah, from public reporting, we know there has been Coke funding and Mercer funding. And then there's like, I forget the man's name, but he's basically like the CRT guy whose goal is to create as much chaos as possible around critical race theory. Uh, one of the things that's interesting when these Facebook campaigns come up is all of a sudden over a course of day, oh, Christopher Rufo, thank you, thank you. One of the things that you see that will happen is all these uh, local pages will just spring up over a couple of days, whether it's anti-masking, whether it's CRT. Uh, and we know that uh, the Tea Party uh, infrastructure still lives on and they are you know, national funders that source local groups. So I think you can assume that Facebook is part of that strategy. Uh, but one of the things that makes it work is they mix in with uh, local organic activity as well. In the field of climate change, you actually do have sort of the big tobacco model of the oil and gas companies who have had a 60 year history at this point of saying it's individual action and funding the doubt of climate change. There's a very clear, well done network. And we work with a group called the Dismog blog that tracks all the climate change deniers and their funding. Linkfluence does that as well. There's a lot of groups that have put that category. But that is increasingly, as we sort of saw from the beginning, there's the old school climate deniers and there's the new school. Um, and the, the new are much more, as Brendan describes, that they're they're organically created as part of just a roving QAnon movement or the, the radical right movement that just picks up these issues on a, a daily basis. So we sort of have both in that category, but it is ultimately are orchestrated over 50 years with a lot of money. And I wanted to add one last thing um, on this point to both of your points. This idea of like funding and who's funding things and like dark money. One of the things I was really surprised to learn from Media Matters' research on critical race theory is at how oftentimes like local right wing kind of maybe wannabe influencer, wannabe celebrities, how they are were rewarded for trafficking in more and more extreme content around things like trans youth, climate, critical race theory, and how like they oftentimes can be doing this to bolster their own kind of like public profile or like get that really cushy local right-wing news talking head position or get on Fox News or get that cushy interview or whatever, how that can actually be a way to like put money in their own pockets. And so just at the end of the day, so many of these folks, whether they're being you know funded by dark money Republicans or not, they are scammers and spammers and they're do sometimes doing this just to line their own pockets. And so reminding myself of that is always really helpful that Platforms have really created an ecosystem that can reward monetarily people who are interested in the worst bad faith attacks on our identities. I want to ask about deplatforming. Uh, it is a constant. I, I saw a really interesting tweet from a college professor who wanted assigned her students uh, to ask uh, if the deplatforming of Alex Jones was effective. And her students, her college students didn't actually know who Alex Jones was, which I think would have been unthinkable two years ago. So with the caveat that I just asked a very weighted question, does the platforming work? Yes. <laughs> yes. 
I mean, I guess yes and. Like, do you remember Richard Spencer? Like, there, there, there was so much conversation about Richard Spencer, this, Richard Spencer, that. When he was the platform, now it's like Richard Spencer who, right? I feel like it's like we know that it, that when we deplatform folks, it really can um, take away from this platform that gives them that much more amplification. And so I say, yes, it does work. And, you know, there was a study that, that was done right after they deplatformed Trump and QAnon. On, uh, and it was a study just of the first part of January. There was a 73% drop in election-related misinformation as a result of that. That's the stat that I've sort of carried around all year when Facebook says, no, you, it's, it's not effective, or people say they'll go to other areas and be just as effective. 73% is our goal. We would love that. Deplatforming definitely works. I think one of the big things, though, is like it needs to be deplatforming and. So like you have you know, Project Veritas, for instance, who's been suspended from Twitter, they're still getting their stuff shared on Twitter. Their videos are still on YouTube um, and they're platformed on other areas, even though like the recent COVID misinformation coming from them is pretty, seems like a pretty obvious violation. Um, so I think that it's like making sure that like that secondary content is also not staying up. For instance, we, we put out research, Media Matters put out research recently about how Trump's pack is still posting like election misinformation in advertisements on Facebook. So it's honestly just a way to get around the ban. So it is a yes, a hundred percent. I agree that it works, but I think that there are other things that need to be in place to make sure that is effective as we want it to be. Have platforms, particularly Google, made any effort towards combating misinformation circulating about abortion, namely crisis pregnancy centers? How could they, especially in the wake of SB8 this year generally? That's a great question. Um, we see so much misinformation and disinformation, particularly around abortion um, on platforms. I think in 2019, Google said they were going to start removing deceptive um, crisis pregnancy centers. So when people Google things like, like abortion or I'm pregnant help, that crisis pregnancy centers were not gonna be the, the, the first result they get. I do know after they pledged to do that, uh, these crisis pregnancy centers continued using loopholes on Google to get around that ban. And so I think that they absolutely should be taking doing more to combat that. And it's like, you know, it's such a clear example of one of those times where we need to not just accept that a platform is a platform and it's totally neutral. If someone is pregnant and they and they need answers or need help, if they're Googling to find that help, if the first thing that Google services for them is a place that's going to lie to them about their bodies and their health, uh, that's a problem. And so I think absolutely uh, platforms, particularly Google, need to be doing more. And then combating uh, misinformation and, and disinformation around abortion specifically, I think all platforms need to do a better job because what we're seeing in Texas, we're seeing in places like Georgia, I think we're going to be seeing it all over the country. And it is the consequences are too urgent to just be like, oh, well, the platform is like, what are you going to do, the algorithm? I think this is a time where we really need to see the ways that platforms have made specific choices in terms of their algorithm to have a specific harmful outcome. So definitely need to be doing more, particularly now. Well, we have two minutes left, and I have one more question for each of the panelists. Uh, what can folks in the audience today do to help move the needle? What is your call to action? Two things. Call your member of Congress. Sorry, but call your member of Congress and tell them to force the platforms to disclose the data. I think that's the first one. And second, support the many advocates advocates and groups that you see at Netroots who are all fighting this and are all need uh, grassroots support. I would agree with Michael. I would also say, you know, share good information out there when you're able to. And also like be, you know, there's like some bipartisan support for, you know, this Facebook stuff. So 
if you're calling your member of Congress, finesse it for them. Um, I would say like focus on harms for children if the Congress person might not <laughs> care about hate speech is one, one thing I'd add. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I would advocate for transparency, calling your member of Congress, unless you live in DC like I do. And then, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> I would also say just like, this might sound a little bit hippy dippy, but really in addition to all those things, really working on like individually divesting, whatever that looks like from you, from the grip that social media plays in our lives. And so whether that looks like when you're scrolling, taking that extra minute to think about it before you hit share or retweet or whatever, um, asking yourself, like, am I working to be an actively good steward of the internet that I want? You know, it might sound a little bit hippy dippy, but really practicing a kind of slowing down and mindfulness when we're all online, I think can really lessen some of the inflammatory ways that obviously Facebook kind of relies on having that control over us. And so finding ways to break that control in our individual lives for our own well-being, for our own peace of mind. Um, obviously, as everyone said, these issues are systemic and institutional and the people with power should be the ones to do something and act. But in, in the absence of that, I think that we need to create a, a media ecosystem where we're not all so polarized and angry and upset because I think that is just lining Facebook's pockets when we are. All right. Well, that's the final word. Uh, thank you, Bridget, Brennan, and Michael for the discussion today. And thank you to the Netroots audience for having us. Take care, everybody. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.